And that's The Smiths with You've Got Everything Now from the album Hatful of Hollow. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, playing the finest in indie pop and beyond. And this week's special guest is going to be a stiff record special, because I caught up with co-founder Dave Robinson a few weeks, months ago. So we're going to be talking about record labels and bands and all that kind of groovy stuff, as well as uh, the usual award-worthy playlist. But to get the party started. I think we should play your favourite and mine. This is Elvis Costello and this is going to be Less Than Zero. Oh, Mr. Oswald with a swastika tattoo There is a vacancy waiting in the 
has had a number that maybe you'll take him to bed to sure he's alive or he wishes he was dead Turn up the TV, no one was none will suspect even your mother won't detect it so your father won't was Elvis Costello with the track Less Than Zero and that was from his 1977 album My Aim Is True that was produced by the one and only, one and only Nick Lowe but uh, the backing band was mostly made up of members of Clover who were an American uh, country outfit that also featured the one and only Huey Lewis I know, I'm full of facts today, aren't I? Anyway, do make notes, I might test you at the end. This is David Esau, this is the C86 show, and it's a stiff record special because I caught up with one of the co-founders of the label, Dave Robinson, recently to find out more about love, life and poetry. Well, probably not, probably about music and record labels and all that kind of stuff instead. But anyway, I've got that interview that I'm going to bring in three easy-to-digest little segments throughout the show. But uh, I think we'll play another track before we have some quality chat. This is going to be The Damned, obviously, and neat, neat, neat. Baby doll 
I know, I'm basically hyperventilating with excitement. I might even take a puff of Ventolin. That was the damned in the track. Neat, neat, neat. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. We so do. Um, yes, Facebook or Twitter, go to at C86 Show, and I will be there. I normally answer quite quickly. And um, yes, keep it kind of positive and groovy. Otherwise, um, don't bother. That's what I say. Life's too short. But anyway, this is going to be the first part of my interview with Dave Robinson from um, Stiff Records, where I asked him about the early years of the label. I know, that was a good question. I patted myself on the back. Anyway, Dave, take it away. Setting up the record label. Well, uh, it was set up because most of the major record companies were terrible. I had various bands, Graham Parker and various other bands, and they were signed to major record labels, and I found major record labels just not to be on the case really. They seem to expect the band to do all the work and build a following and nothing has changed these days either. No. So they weren't very good. I, I, Like a lot of groups at the time or managers, you felt that when you signed to a major record company that you were going to get an expertise, a, a step up, that something was going to happen that was remarkable. I mean, they had more money and potentially they had better press people. But other than that, um, they didn't seem to have any kind of real idea of how to market um, new bands to the public and and draw them to the public's attention, which is pretty much part of the job. Yes. And do you find that? So Stiff was was a, a reaction to that. I thought we could do it better. Yes. And is it the case that people often are sort of in those positions, get a bit complacent and relaxed and think, well, this is great. We just got, you know, during that period, you had this sort of the, the emergence of heavy metal as well as prog rock and some interesting chart material. So obviously anything new coming along is often feels quite challenging to somebody who's been in the business for a while and thinks that this is just going to be a very short passing fad. But actually, there's going to be a change and that change isn't then going to go back to what what it was beforehand? Well, I don't know what, you know, I mean, essentially, major record companies uh, are, are based in America. I mean, EMI and Decca were the British record companies, and they very, uh, as we all know, were absorbed by American or European record labels. And everybody wanted to bring the American kind of attitude to it. They also, they expected the group to do the work. They wanted to sign people that already had a following. They, they really didn't have an attitude of finding new artists and developing them and developing their market and connecting them to the public. They didn't seem to, that kind of bit seemed to be not in their idea of how it worked. The majors traditionally were distributors and manufacturers. They had factories and distribution. And they, in America, they had a lot of independent record labels that they distributed so the small independent would build a following for local artists and the major would then take it over if they thought it might uh, travel across the various american states so you had hits in different states and then the idea was to spread them but uh, they started their own a and r departments because the factories were inevitably a bit seasonal there were times of the year when they didn't have any distribution didn't have any manufacturing going on because people had taken a holiday or something. So they started their own departments purely to make up for the lack of continuity of their manufacturing uh, setup. 
Yes. And that's, you know, that's a poor reason, but that's pretty much the same ethos that we have today. Yeah, absolutely. And then, obviously, because it was, was it Graham Parker who was kind of the kind of, uh, the almost like the catalyst for you to start the record label? Yeah, it certainly was for me. Graham Parker, I thought, was, you know, really sensational. I thought the band was sensational. The shows live were going down extraordinarily well. People were really getting very excited. Uh, it was a musical. Graham was a very straight-ahead kind of artist. And I think Bruce Springsteen in the documentary said that he was nervous of Graham when Graham emerged because he thought Graham was taking the space that he hoped to occupy. Yeah. And uh, they were very, were very let down in America by the licensed label there called Mercury. It was, it was the label owned by Phonogram in Holland that ran their American uh, franchise. And they were in Chicago, which meant that the music was kind of slightly different from New York and L.A., which is where Graham was really scoring. They were inclined to like kind of a, a jazzy funk kind of area. Um, and they, the artists they had were kind of medium. I mean, um, Thin Lizzy were also very disappointed in Mercury. Mm. And... I think Graham and Thin Lizzy uh, were going to be very successful in the USA, it looked like. But the label needed to be behind them or with them or about them, and they couldn't seem to kind of work it out. They didn't really get excited about their artists. And being a manager, as I was, uh, that was a big drawback because we thought, you know, a lot of, as I said, a lot of people thought when they get to the record label stage, they think they're going to get a big step up. And it doesn't always follow. It just means that you are potentially in a position to go forward, but it doesn't mean you will. No, because the one thing I noticed kind of doing this interview with them, in these interviews for the show, is that when bands do their thing and they start to sort of progress, the, one, the, the, the thing that really finishes most bands off is when they tour America. It seems to be the, the death. What, what is it that, that sort of gives, gives so many bands the sort of like, this, this was kind of the beginning of the end when we toured America? What, you know, because it seems such It's very a, big. It's very big, America, and they don't have a bleed over. Like, we're used in the UK to having one a radio, BBC Radio 1 or Radio 2 or whatever. Uh, and to have a newspaper or a music mag that covers the country. So, like, we're like a one state. And in America, you know, they have the 52 states. So you've got to cover all of those. And they don't have a bleed through. They don't have a TV station or a radio station or a, or press that covers all those things. That's why the huge cost of American elections, for example, yes. is because they have to elect. They have to spend a lot of money in each state. And the same with the states in America, you are dealing with such a diverse um, interest in music or anything else that it's quite hard to cover all the corners and get the whole thing kind of working. The Billboard chart, which is what everybody used to relate to, uh, that was being the biggest trade magazine in America. Essentially, if you move 10 places in the chart every week, you kept the bullet. You got a bullet to move 10 places. And that bullet became very important. If any week you didn't move the 10 places required to keep your bullet, as they called it, then a lot of radio stations, which are all very, all commercial, all running uh, commercials, 
they would there was you know there was no real public radio which uh, played music and had a, an effect. So you had to collect all these different commercial stations on your record, and they obviously would play your record because their public wanted it. So they used to do a lot of research, and so keeping the bullet became. <laughs> It's an interesting expression there. It became the thing that you needed to do, and that meant you had to be working. Uh, also, to cover America, you know, it takes about two years to play all the venues that you might play, for example. Yes. There wasn't that many big festivals in those days. Yes. We're talking about the um, 70s and 80s. Uh, there weren't the big festivals so much. And so there was no real national position that you could get. So you had to work. There you go. That's the first part of my interview with Dave Robinson, co-founder of Stiff Records. I've still got some more of that anyway. And uh, now I feel slightly guilty because a few months ago I did interview Graham Parker. And that's one of those interviews that still need to be done, dusted and uh, broadcast. But anyway... That will have to be another day. But I think we'll have another track before any more of that interest in chat. This is going to be your favourite of mine. Yes, this is going to be Mr Predictable Time. This is Larry Wallace and this is Police Car. OK, let's take a ride in the police car.
That uh, was obviously Larry Wallace and the track Police Car, and that was taken from the live um, collection titled Five, uh, I was going to say Five Live Stiffs. No, Live Stiffs Live. And that was recorded in 1977. And most of it, I think, was at the UEA. So there you go, local connection. And I always prefer the live version to the. Um, to the studio one. There you go. I think the studio one actually lasts about seven minutes and it is worth tracking down if you get a chance. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Now, um, as I mentioned earlier, and hopefully you were paying attention, I caught up with Dave Robinson from uh, the co-founder of Stiff Records recently. Um, and this is the part of the interview where I was talking about his early years because recently I'd uh, interviewed an author called Mark Blake, who did a book on Peter Grant titled Bring It On Home. And um, obviously you don't just go to um, just get into sort of managing something like Stiff Records or Led Zeppelin without having a bit of a background to music. And this is the bit where I'd been out talking about what uh, Dave Robinson's uh, sort of background and his kind of experience during the 60s and 70s was. And this was Dave's answer. Dave, take it away. Well, the record, the record label, the culmination, you know, the record labels were the important end of that's where the income for everybody was. And also the kind of fame, the word spreading thing was in a record company. And the record company, from my point of view, was culmination of all the things I had done. I'd been a photographer. I worked in the printing trade. I had... I had the experience. I'd been on the road with a lot of bands. I'd tour managed. I had, you know, I had a musical kind of appreciation kind of area. I was into, I used to run a few clubs. I owned a couple of clubs. So I had an experience that was incredibly broad. Yes. And so a record company drew all those matters together in one place. And so, and so Stiff was a reaction to, as we've just said, against the major record companies who I didn't feel supported their artists and, and were really interested in the music. All the all the music that I thought was worth, worthy and good was supported by independent labels. Yes. And what you which said... were labels owned by one guy or you know, when your money's on the on the mark then then you're really into it. The 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 majors got very corporate. Yes. And had a very corporate attitude. And were you, in those early days, a bit surprised if you had a sort of time to think about it? This is sort of the the strike, the strike success level that you had during that period to begin with, especially where you know everybody seemed to you know I don't know if you ever saw that trog you know listen to the trogs tape where you know they were trying to record a, a a track and he kept shouting you know sprinkle some fairy dust on it, and um, yes, it became a legendary recording. And and again, you know the those those kind of, that catalogue in the early years. It was just like somebody had sprinkled fairy dust on every sort of release you virtually did. And it, and it's, you know, they're still here sort of nearly 40 years later. So was it, did you just kind of go to bed at night thinking, my God, I'm just, I've got the minus touch here. Well, you know, that's, that's was the job. The job an indie record label, you are thinking of your artists all the time. You are working, uh, you know, 24 seven, on what they're doing, what they're about to do, what they should be doing, where they should be going. Um, and you would have a small staff, so all of you are totally occupied, you know, with every aspect of the record business, and you were supporting your artists because you felt that that, certainly in my case, where it came from management, 
you're supporting the artist, I thought it was the record company's kind of job is to understand marketing, understand the elements that the band couldn't be expected to. Their job is to write the songs and perform, and you are supposed to do the rest. And I thought that was, you know, that was what you were supposed to do. Obviously, if it's successful, then you have a good business, and the group earn money, you earn money, and, you know, you, but you then reinvested in the next band, yes. so to speak. But I thought the, the record company should be a partner to the group, although the contracts of that period specifically uh, stressed that you were not in a partnership. Yet, to make it work, you had to be in some kind of partnership. You had to have a certain trust between the, what the artist could do, what he would do, how he would perform, how much work he would do, and the amount of work that your staff and all the various departments, be it uh, you know, advertising, uh, supporting group, uh, touring, so tour support that you raise money and and encourage them to go out on the road and earning very little, but you paying for some of the costs. It was like, you know, I, I had a different, it turned out that I had seen a different element, different yes. attitude. Because I how, yet people talk about the big companies because they're the people who are international and who have a lot of resources and who radio and media uh, listen to because they. You know, they they get impressed by the size of the record label rather than the music of the artist. Yes, yes, and and one thing that I sort of came, you know, is really sort of aware of doing this show is that the importance of uh, certain, you know, and you sort of mentioned it a bit earlier, the sort of the gatekeeper of of, of um, the radio, really, which was kind of the importance of John Peel during that time, because because a lot of the bands that I've interviewed, they have like a five year narrative. You know, they have two years getting something together. They eventually make a song, a single, and John Peel plays it. Then you get the session, the John Peel album, and things are going really well. And obviously, the second album. And if anybody, like I said, towards America, things go slightly wrong. So the importance of people like John Peel during that period must have been. Absolutely critical for him. John Peel was a god at the end of the day. He he was phenomenal. You know, he, I met him during the time of the um, you know the late sixties, early seventies, when the music festivals were starting, and essentially they were free expressions of musical kind of energy. Yes. Uh, they weren't big ticket uh, earners. So, you know, a lot of them didn't have senses, and people would walk in. Bickershaw, all those early, the early uh, Glastonbury, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, Brindisi Schwartz, the band that I looked after, I, I had them playing those festivals because I thought that's bringing the music to the public, uh, good for the band, but equally uh, something that the public would appreciate. And John P. was the DJ at pretty much all of them. So I met him very early stage, and he was very supportive of an awful lot of music. I mean, he, he had a very Catholic taste musically, and he, as we all know, was, this, you know, on Radio 1, the national radio station in the evening, you didn't know what you would hear. It was good, bad, indifferent, exciting, whatever he fancied, and he would play, he would give, you know, the smallest band a play and give them some kind of encouragement because he believed it was a, a, a meaningful occupation. Yes, well, this is true, actually. I think when he did the Ramones and then the Damned, I think that's... Because he was kind of... He, he had also been slightly struggling at that point to, to sort of work out where 
or what to to sort of focus on next. And and sort of having read quite a lot of the books and followed his career, you know, I realised that it was almost like you know he was you know he was playing some quite sort of poor poor stuff in the very mid seventies, and it was kind of like that introduction of punk and and sort of new bands and new labels that gave him the next enthusiasm to to sort of be relevant. I suppose that's the key, isn't it? Well, you know? he liked a natural expression of music, and I, I would think that I have the same kind of instincts. Although running a record label, you obviously you have to look at cash flow a bit, and you have to you know, hopes that you're making a bit of income and paying your staff and whatever. But John Peel had an interest in kind of folk music, and I don't mean the kind of bearded type where everyone's going shush or whatever, you know, or have their fingers in their ears. I'm talking about, you know, the Beatles to me were folk, real folk music, music that was socially involved in the environment in which it came from. And... I thought that was, you know, that was the real plus of English music, even though the Beatles and various other bands of that period were obviously taking their influence from American blues. Yes. And so that kind of blues thing, which Americans, quite honestly, didn't pay any attention to at that stage. There used to be a, there used to be a big kind of, I suppose they call them race records, but there was a very big take on the early rock and roll records in various states but the english bands took more interest of them and then there was a period where people the americans forgot all about their their roots kind of music and you know they became interested in white music or some of which was derived from the blues but a lot of it was then derived from various drugs <laughs> people were taking <laughs> so so the, but the real nitty-gritty i mean you know i got i got involved in the rock and roll business i was you know starting Rock and roll was where it was at. This kind of music, this kind of gritty folk music, this kind of simple but pungent kind of music and this kind of attitude about music was an important thing. And you've got to remember the end of the, the, end of the 60s, a lot of the FM radio kind of playing album tracks and things was all around the period of the Vietnam War, which everybody disapproved of, obviously. And obviously, if you're American and you might be drafted, you'd particularly disapprove of it. But uh, the, the, the bottom line was an awful lot of the music that was played on radio during that period when stereo radio, uh, rather than top 40, uh, kind of manipulated music. The FM was much more musical and much more free-flowing and much more coming from the social elements. Uh, that was the period that formed the golden years, really. Indeed, the golden years. I could have gone into David Bowie there, but um, I'm not that prepared. And also, he wasn't on Stiff Records. But I have to say, I was very excited this week because I managed to get get an interview with Angie Bowie at very long last. So hopefully that interview will come out soon. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show, and I think we'll play some more music before any more of that interview. This is going to be Kirsty McCall, and this is in New England.
There you go, chart band sounds. That's Kirsty McColl with the track "A New England," and um, I was just having a look, as I do, as I do, with great research. Yes, she died in um, well, it was the 18th of December 2000. I didn't realise it was so long ago. What a depressing thought. Anyway, um, and the other thing that I hadn't realised until I was doing some more extensive research was the opening lines of that song. I was 21 years when I wrote this song. I'm 22 now, but I won't be for long are identical to the opening lines of Paul Simon's song Leaves That Are Green, which appears on a 1966 album, Sounds of Silence. I'm sure every... I don't know. Does everyone know that? And I've just caught up. Anyway, if it does, if I am... Yes, if I am just catching up, I apologise. Anyway, there you go. Written by Billy Bragg, the one and only. And the other thing about um, that was mentioned a bit earlier with my interview with Dave Robinson was the Bickenshaw um, Festival, which was organised by the one and only Jeremy Beadle. Yes, that Jeremy Beadle. So um, there you go. Interesting facts. I will test you at the end of the show. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. I won't tell you how you can contact me yet. I'll just repeat it a bit later on in the show. But this is um, the next part of my interview with Dave Robinson, where I um, was talking about that famous live album that was recorded in Norwich many decades ago. And this was Dave's reply. Dave, you sounded excited by that comment. Here, yeah, yeah. here well, it is. Well, you know, we were busy. Uh, we were busy promoting our artists and, and our attitude to do uh, tours with with many artists on the same tour. And you know, and uh, there were, of course, universities then that, who booked bands. I mean, as aside from nowadays, where the the local bar manager in the university will book his cousin to play Friday night DJ and uh, a couple of uh, tribute bands. But in those days, it was a kind of a circuit. The colleges were supported by labor government mainly and subsidized to a large extent with a, with a view to being able to put on music as art uh, in some uh, area of it. And so it's just, we did all those things. We, we had the package tour which was an English institution long before I was uh, yes. I got into it. You know, I used to, there was tours go around the country where some of the acts would only sing one song because they only had one hit. And uh, it was, it, it, you know, we took all those elements, all those various elements and mixed them together into, a, into uh, an individual attitude. I mean, stiff, the undertakers for the industry was one of our mottos. And... Uh, <laughs> It was, you know, I like to get people who'd been around some of the record companies and been, uh, you know, been rejected by them so that when they came to Stiff, uh, they would be workers. They'd be ready to work. They're ready to grasp, you know. Yes. Um, and I believe in a kind of, I suppose, a slightly Protestant work ethic attitude. It's difficult in the Northeast now to get young people to persevere with stuff, you know, they're used to instant gratification or next, and and they can't seem to um, persevere with stuff, or they don't think it's worth persevering with. But I don't blame them, because our politicians and all the people who kind of lead us, now that the internet has shown them all up to be total charlatans, I mean, it's very hard to find a male or female or some kind of... Uh, a group to actually believe in. It's very difficult for everybody. It's a, it's, yes. it's a difficult thing. Uh, you know, the human beings find trouble to find things going forward. I always thought there was an art quotient. I thought there was some art in the music, and that's why I got into it. Yes. And I worry 
from time to time whether it will resurface if you, if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, like I said, I've done you know a huge amount of interviews around this kind of subject, and it, you know talking to people like Fast Eddie from Motorhead and. And most, virtually every of those bands, they, they didn't go on the X Factor. They just had to work their asses off for two years, mostly claiming unemployment benefit, living in squats, and just thinking this is our only thing that we've got. And, it, you know, we haven't got Plan B. You know, people like Lemmy didn't have Plan B. And it was kind of interesting. Lemmy was terribly lazy, very lazy. We had him on stiff, and I worked with him uh, with Jimi Hendrix, roading for Jimi Hendrix at one point. And Le- <laughs> Many was great fun, but totally idle. But yes, there was at least um, the the uh, social security uh, did accept music as a possible um, occupation, and that you were entitled to try and get music on your own terms. You didn't have to be a classical person for them to write you on the books as a musician, and you were supposed to be able to join a band and play music on the basis that uh, if, if you couldn't and earn a living, they would give you the dole. Yes. So that's, that's the start of pub rock and punk rock and all those kind of places. Yes. All those kind of things which did uh, mobilize a lot of people to think songwriting and that kind of attitude is worthwhile. But you're always looking for people to come up with social stuff. I mean, I am. I'm, you know, I'm amazed by how few English uh, punk or other, any kind of bands have come up with any kind of, uh, you know, aside from Billy Bragg or a few people like that who were into labor. I'm surprised that none of them are writing about what we're going through, what what is happening with Brexit and stuff. You would, you would, I, I would think there should be, if not protest songs, there should be humorous songs laughing at the politicians ability to understand what it is that their um <laughs> their electors want you know what the people want because music is supposed to mirror is it not the art is supposed to mirror the social situation and i i deplore a lot of people's uh, attitude at the moment it's very hard to find a band that you're going to listen to its music and think that it's not some never-ending, unrequited love story. Yes. Uh, and that it's, uh, you know, the Bob Marley's of this world, the Bob Dylan's, the, the people who wrote about what was going on in their lives. Well, it's interesting. The good, cause... bad, or indifferent. Yes, because I'm... Mean... That's the music peel push. That's the music that is essential to be heard nowadays. And there's very little of it. I know that's the third part of my interview with Dave Robinson from Stiff Record fame. Um, I might just play a little bit more of that uh, before the end of the show, but I think we'll have a bit more music because we would mention a bit earlier uh, in the interview about Graham Parker, and I was just thinking it'd be really good to hear Hey Lord, Don't Ask Me Questions. So here it is. Take it away, Graham. Yeah. A woman was left. 
Go Graham Parker and the rumour and that was hey Lord don't ask me questions and I must now get around to uh, putting out a Graham Parker special because um, like I said I just interviewed him a few months ago when he was releasing a record and playing some live dates in the in the UK but anyway more guilt this is going to be the next part of my interview with Dave Robinson from Stiff Records where I was talking about the uh, kind of 80s and the political time because um, let's face it we always like to talk about Red Wedge and Rock Against Racism, as well as Barley Cup and TVP, but that's just if you're sort of a bit of a, an SWP sort of person. Anyway, Dave, take it away. Brits are inclined to get carried away. England is inclined to get carried away with uh, the theatricals, very, very into the theatricals. You know, David Bowie is a perfect example of that. Queen were very theatrical. I couldn't understand either of them. I mean, David Bowie from time to time came up with the odd song that was quite decent, and I think uh, Queen similarly, but generally their music was rubbish, and uh, and an awful lot of the bands are rubbish, and you should think, look, go and get a job, you know, go and become an accountant or something if you're going to make music of this ilk because you're trying to what? Make money. If you make any art for money, it's not art at the end of the day. It's money. And so, you know, they should be put in their own chart. They should have their own specific chorale that they live in. And we should encourage the people who are putting out stuff that's interesting, that's written about what it is that we're all kind of experiencing, should have the, you know, the real chart or something that should be. Years ago, Peel, um, you know, there was a chart called the Indie Chart. I mean, now indie music is a kind of a style of music rather than uh, what it started out to be, which was music which was generated by people who cared uh, out of their own pockets. 
Yes, absolutely. And and sort of as a sort of scene that most bands have this five year narrative of, like I said, you know, a couple of years getting something together, playing in front of their friends, family and anybody else they could emotionally blackmail to see them. And then, you know, Peel would give them a play, then a session, then the album. Then you'd have that tricky second or third album. And like I said, anybody who does America seemed to come back kind of emotionally knackered basically and that's well, the it's tricky it's, it's a tricky thing it's tricky but also it's down perhaps to management and to people who have to guide you know a lot of a lot of groups are young adults just starting out in a lot of cases that didn't perhaps have a huge education qualification they could play the guitar and so they needed a little bit of guidance perhaps by senior or older people who would guide them into areas of expression so that they could make themselves felt in a in a in a fashion america very difficult but great uh song i mean let's face it it's uh there's great song sources in america well yeah absolutely i mean racism over there is just as bad as it was when i was there in the late 60s when i was amazed i thought uh, kennedy being irish I thought Kennedy had sorted all these things out before they shot him. Uh, and I was amazed to find the incredible racism of America, which is now people are noticing because of the election and Trump and things. They're just realizing that the great land of democracy is just not democratic. No, and so it's uh, fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating, you know. It is true. I mean, I've got a. I look after a band called um, Hardwick Circus, who come from Carlisle, and they're young guys, and they, they've written a really good song, which I quite like, where where the singer sings, "Hands up," and the backing singer sings, "Don't shoot, don't shoot." <laughs> I mean, it's 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 required. It's required that music. M- mirror some element of righteousness that we should have about our you know our human human existence and particularly the yanks i mean the lovely country you're not hearing any songs from anybody about what's going on over there what's going on there is not attractive it's not pleasant no, They're not pleasant people who are running the country. No, this but is true. Nobody seems to be objecting. They're just worried about the next dollar. Indeed. A good, good, good point, a time to uh, leave that there. But a big thank you for Dave Robinson for giving me the time for that um, interview, which was, I know, he slagged off David Bowie. I, um, I, did, I did slightly laugh. Anyway, thank you ever so much for that, Dave. Always interesting. Um, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook or Twitter. Go to at C86 Show. I will be there. It's always good as long as it's positive and groovy. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, I'm going to leave you with a bit of Ian Dury. This is What a Waste. <laughs> Sergeant in a squadron full of wellness, what a waste. What a waste. What a waste. What a waste. Because I chose to play the fool in a six-piece band. First nine nerves, everyone I stand. I should be glad to be so inclined. What a waste, what a waste.
man and full of more waste station, what a waste. What a waste. What a waste. What a waste. Because I'm trying to play the fool in a six-piece band. First night girls, every one night stand. I should be glad to be so inclined. What a waste, what a waste, what a hold on The revolution. I could be an inmate in a long-term institution. I could do the world extremes. I could do a die. I could yawn and be withdrawn and watch them gallify. What a waste! What a waste! What a waste! What a waste! What a waste. <laughs> 